Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit ExcelsiorGP.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Excelsior Capital Club podcast. I'm here today with Dan Hamilton. Dan is a senior non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution and senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of John Hopkins University. He also serves as president of the Transatlantic Leadership Network and is president of the Atlantic Basin Initiative. And he has a terrific website, which we will link to transatlanticrelations.org. So Dan, I've been following your work for a while. You produce some incredible content in regards to actually the numbers and facts and figures associated with the trade relationship between the U.S. and Europe. Could you maybe give us a perspective of where the U.S. trade relationship with Europe ranks in relation to, say, with Southeast Asia or Africa, South America, et cetera? Sure. It's number one. <laughs> it's a short answer. By a lot, yeah. right? Yeah, by a lot. I think when you say Europe, of course, it's many different countries, but the European Union has a single market and they have single trade authority for 27 different countries. So you really are talking about one trade partner when you talk about the European Union. The United Kingdom's not part of the EU anymore, but is a major U.S. partner, as are countries like Switzerland and others. No, I think often in the media and public opinion, we get a little confused when we talk about commercial relations with other countries. If you read most newspapers, they look at trade figures and they show you charts, shows you how important trade with China is and so on. It's really important to look at, take another look and say, what are they actually measuring there? And usually, almost always, it's just trade in goods. So trade in goods is important, especially important with China. But usually that ignores this charts services. So services is where most jobs are in the United States, where most jobs are in Europe. It's, the, it's growing much faster than trade in goods in the global economy. And it's in U.S. Europe uh, trade and services is six times what European trade and services of China is. It's not even close. And so we talk about a trade deficit the United States has with so many countries around the world, but we have a trade surplus in services almost everywhere. 
because that is a huge strength of the United States. Sometimes it doesn't exactly compensate for the goods deficit, but you have to look at both of those together. And if you do that, you see that uh, the United States by far is Europe's most important commercial partner, not China, but you read often in the media that China somehow is. It's just not the case. It's not even the case in goods. It used to be, but that's changed too. And the same, say China-US trade is moving ahead and also with Asia, but Europe still is number one in, in a lot of different ways. This also ignores what is the real driver, which is not trade, but investment. So investment flows are what really drives things. If you go to Economics 101 class, they'll, they'll tell you it's trade, but it's not really, especially with Europe. Just think of how companies really operate. Most companies would prefer to be close to their customer and sell goods and services near their customer than to send stuff across the ocean if they have the choice. And across the Atlantic, since most trade is pretty free, they have that choice. So for decades, U.S. companies have been in Europe just as integrated in the European economy as the European companies, just being close to the customer. And for the last three or four decades, European companies have been doing the same thing with the North American market because they want to be inside that big market. So if you put the investment flows together, again, there's no other flows in the world that are even come close to the transatlantic flows of investment. The European companies by far are the largest investors. They count for two thirds of all foreign investment in the United States. There really aren't other companies in countries, you think about it, Japan, Australia, China doesn't invest much in the United States and it's getting much tougher. So who does it? It's mainly Europe and, the, and vice versa. Europe's not gonna accomplish most of its goals without the participation of US companies because they're so deeply integrated. And the new story is the energy economy. So that wasn't even a story a couple of years ago, but now given Russia's war on Ukraine and Europe's efforts to wean itself off of its addiction to Russian energy, the United States has stepped in as a major partner for Europe. And Europe has become the number one customer now for US energy around the world. And so it's not just gas, LNG, and, and the fossil fuel economy, it is the fossil free economy going forward. So. If you look at how this works in uh, Europe, you sign long-term contracts for renewable energy, solar, wind, those types of things. Five of the top 10 companies signing those contracts were American companies in Europe. And if you look at the United States, the largest companies by far invest in the US energy economy, fossil free or fossil fuel or European companies, especially German companies. So, what the war has shown us is that we are now bound in a wholly different type of economic relationship. And given all the challenges we faced over the last years, just think of it, it's not just Mr. Putin, but pandemics, China, supply chains. What, what we've seen is that the transit economy is actually quite resilient. U.S. companies never made more money in history, more money in history than they did in Europe last year better than any other year in history. And European companies last year made the second highest number of profits in the United States in history. And the year before was the number one year. So despite all you read about tough times and so on, this is becoming a, a very resilient economy. And I think most companies use their transatlantic links as kind of the, their geoeconomic base to be globally competitive. 
So services companies are so intertwined, and then they use that competitive position that the Gobi's competitive in Southeast Asia and other places. So often take a, my, my basic advice is always when you see something in the media, it says assert something, take a next look at the trade numbers and see what are they actually talking about? Because it's not usually what you think it is. Yeah, I mean, it's just fascinating because to your point, the, the media, and by that I mean, let's call it the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, etc., paint a picture of this crucial relationship with China. And when China sneezes, we catch a cold, more or less. But to your point, it really is this U.S.-European relationship that is one of the bulwarks of our underlying economy and GDP. I'm curious, is that because people confuse geopolitical military issues with trade? Or is it because the Obama administration really did reorient towards Asia and, and away from Europe as a headline that we see more and more? Well, I think in Europe and the United States, about 20 years ago or more, we made a bet. The bet was we would integrate China into the global trading system and their membership in the World Trade Organization, the WTO, was sort of the key pivot for that. And we thought over time, more trade would lead to a transformation of their system and they would become, the term at the time was a responsible stakeholder in the international system. That was the bet. And so and that coupled with China's own strategy, which was to, as they said, the going out strategy was to push exports. It was to push manufacturing, uh, restrain consumption at home, and do everything they could to uh, push everything out. And so that meant they were reliant on the consumers of the West to buy everything, which we were all happy to do because it was cheaper and it seemed, and we built the supply chains around that model, both on the Western side and the Chinese side. And I think what's happened, at least in the United States, I think there's a fairly strong consensus now that we lost the bet and that uh, you have to look more selectively at what's actually happening here. I think in Europe, there's a similar debate. They're not quite at the same place we are, but they're moving toward it. And of course, every country is having its own debate, so it's hard to speak of a European perspective. But you take a country like Germany, which is probably the key economy in Europe, they bet heavily on the Chinese model and on that export model, right? Because they were exporting their specialized manufacturing to China, and the Chinese couldn't, they just needed it. They didn't have anything like it. And we didn't really provide that same type of specialized manufacturing that the Germans are so good at. So. What's happened though, is China basically is creating Germany in China. They basically taking the German model and now exporting the same stuff back to Germany. So when we were complaining in the United States about all these trade deficits, Germany was one of the first only countries in the world to have a trade surplus with China. And they thought that's because they were doing everything right. What, what they're realizing now is they were giving China the tools to become competitive in the same industries that the Germany had always been the world leader in. So now the German car industry is under extreme challenge from Chinese electric vehicles, for instance. And you can go through a list of other kind of industries. So I think we're each groping for the way we can best deal with China. I don't think decoupling is the right term. Like the Europeans like to use the word de-risking. I mean, these are all abstract 
terms, but I, it, I think it describes a little better what both sides are probably doing. The Obama, I mean, the Biden administration has sort of taken on that term now too. And it, it, what it means basically is you put up some high walls around some really high end technologies that you don't want to be linked into the Chinese Communist Party and the military, but you let kind of low tech other kind of stuff still flow. Um, you restrict investments that are seen as problematic, but those that aren't can go ahead. So I think we're, we don't have it right yet, I don't think on each side, but I think that's where we're trying to reset the, the relationship with China. Uh, and the extent we can do that together, we'll be in a much better position, but I think we're still sorting out some of those issues. Well, and I agree, but I'm curious if you, if I were to ask you an unfair question to project out into the future, it's very clear that to your point, Germany and some of these larger European industrial economies made a bet on cheap Russian energy and cheap Chinese labor. And that has not really worked out very well for the Europeans or frankly for the US. And so there seems to be a reorientation, right? A reshoring. And maybe would that, in your opinion, lead to a retrenchment between relations in the US and Europe, as opposed to, I, I don't agree. I don't like the term decoupling either, just because we are a global economy. But when you look at kind of the volume and you forecast out, do you see this relationship with Europe, Europe strengthening? Because it is on some level a zero-sum game, right? Well, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game if the pie expands. So economics doesn't have to be a zero-sum game if you're growing. But of course, it's not even in its effects. And so who benefits from that growing pie is that's what the competition's about. I think it's hard to tell. And I think it varies by sector and it varies by country. And so it's complicated. But I think there are th if you think about the future, the way quick way I think about it, there are kind of three drivers. One is technology driver. One is the corporate driver, corporate strategy driver. The third is the policy driver. So the policy driver at the moment, and it was not just Biden administration, Trump, of course, even and tougher in some ways on some of this, said we have to restrict these things because our economic model is also tied to our security. And uh, we have to take a hard, much harder look about that, be more directive about where the market's going when it comes to a state-run economy like China, where that can allocate so, so many subsidies and things to its own purposes. So that, I think, is the direction of tightening. I think the corporate driver, companies are faced with that policy, and they're thinking themselves through the pandemic, the supply chain problems, that it's probably not good to be reliant on one country for so much of what you do. And so I think companies for their own reasons and then spurred on by the policy are looking to diversify. So it's not really decoupling or de-risking. It's de-risking in a way, but they're diversifying. So I think that's more the driver for many companies. And so the upshot of that is you see Vietnam now becoming an important secondary location for a lot of companies. India is making a big pitch for some higher tech places. The one that's really, I think, the new story is Mexico. The ports in Mexico and the Pacific are starting to challenge Los Angeles. And a lot of container ships come now to Mexican ports. They go across land to 
uh, Nuevo Laredo, and they are building new factories there across the border, making Laredo, Texas now, our bin- biggest inland port, if you want to call it that. It used to be that the containers came to L.A., got on the trucks, and went across the whole United States. Now, many of them are getting to Laredo and then supply the eastern United States from there rather than from the West Coast. So it's changing the nature of the U.S. market as well. And actually, Chinese companies are part of that. It's not actually against them. And then the third driver, I think, is technology. And that cuts lots of different ways. But in the highest end, where we're concerned about being competitive and where, again, the Chinese state system means the military and the civilian kind of fuse together, I think we're trying to be cautious. We're not trying to give the Chinese any technologies that might enhance that capability. And I think that what the Biden administration has done is make a very big change in how it thinks about that. It has said, we used to want to be a couple generations ahead of everybody else in technology. Now we just want to ensure we are absolutely dominant. So if that's your goal, not just to stay ahead, but to just dominate, then you're going to have a very different tech policy than before. And you can see that in how they're tightening the screws and lots of different things. The Europeans are not there yet on that type of issue. And also in many technologies, they're not in the lead. So that's where we have our transatlantic debates. But I think, so that's why it cuts different ways. But I think you see a very interesting change in the way the global economy is working. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. I'm very curious to hear your commentary on the state of affairs in the EU. Obviously, Brexit a number of years ago was a shock to the system. It seems to be this recurring dynamic of the rich north underpinning the poor south. Demographics are, are not great in Europe. They have a lot of challenges. It's often described as sclerotic and Brussels is a mess. Could you maybe give us some context or perspective of, of what the, the state of play is within the EU today? Sure. Well, I always joke that if you if we sit in the United States and we look over there, we say, well, oh my God, what a mess, right? But I'm in Europe a lot. And when they look across the ocean the other way, they say, oh my God, what a mess, too. <laughs> Uh, this is the nature of how we interact with each other. I think it depends, again. You have uh, countries like Germany, which remain globally competitive. There are interesting charts that's, that show there are three countries that are the key to global supply chains. China is the key to simple supply chains that don't go a lot of places. But the United States and Germany are the key to the more complex supply chains. And so Germany really is a hub if you will, for what much of what happens within the European Union. And so the way the German economy goes really does determine a lot. And what they did and what U.S. companies did when the single market expanded years ago into Eastern Europe is they simply extended all their networks and supply chains throughout the bigger single market. So you see an interesting change, for instance, when the Berlin Wall came down, there was no U.S. investment in Poland. But now... U.S. companies employ over 250,000 Poles because of those investments that I'm talking about. And they've come from places like the U.K. or France. They haven't come from elsewhere. 
And U.S. companies aren't leaving Europe, but they're shifting where they invest in Europe. So it is important to think of Europe as this kind of fluid dynamic, and that affects the competitiveness. So, yeah, they've had some problems with the Eurozone and things like that. But at the moment, for instance, the, the basket cases that time, Greece, Spain, Italy, at least Spain and Italy, Spain and Greece are doing much better. The inflation in Spain now is lower at a lower track than Germany. So it's hard to it's hard to know. I think overall the trend is there are some recent articles that show that the US is simply outpacing now the EU in lots of ways, the US economy. I think that's causing some concern. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Europe. Uh, but again, U.S. companies, they have to bet their money on that continent, and they they continue to invest. As I say, they never made more money than they did last year. So they must say something's going uh, right there. In five years, will the EU be larger than it is today or smaller? Uh, I think it'll be larger. I don't know about five, but the new dynamic is, of course, Ukraine. Yeah. The war, and I think it's simply it's the largest land war in Europe since World War II. War crimes, all sorts of horrific things being happening there. It, it has shattered every premise the Europeans had about their continent after the Cold War. And I think there's a, simply a determination that you, Ukraine is part of Europe, and really the only way you stop Putin is to ensure that is the case. Because a, a successful, stable, democratic, corruption-free, uh, possible Ukraine, would have this biggest impact on Russia and the Russian society. A successful Ukraine would ripple through Russia like you can't believe, because it would show that a related country, related economy, could actually make it. And so, I think that's what scares Putin so much: is that Ukraine is the alternative is a really scary thought to him and his uh, repressive model, which means for us, that's probably the part of the solution. And so you see why the West is supporting Ukraine so much. It's a very big country. It has a, had a legacy of corruption and bad politics because it was in this gray zone, kind of still in the post-Soviet kind of cloud. And I think it's war has clarified their minds of where their future lies. The EU has said it will, it has declared formally now, it will take in Ukraine as an accession candidate. There is a summit happening right now in Europe, and there's a big push to start accession negotiations already with Ukraine and Moldova, a tiny country next to Ukraine, already by the end of this year. 
but those things don't happen quickly. Uh, you have to do a lot of things to join the European Union. So, so I'm not sure five years, but the trajectory might be clear within those five years. And I think I, I think the idea of fracturing Europe now, I don't know if candidates, other candidates now wanting to leave as much as the UK did. I was always taught that Russia had a schizophrenic sense of identity oftentimes split between orientation towards Europe and away from. It seems like in this part of the historical cycle, we are certainly orient they are certainly orienting away from Europe. Do you think there's any possibility within our lifetimes that they change their stance and attempt to integrate considering the path they're on today? Well, we had thought that might have been the case thirty years ago the collapse of the Soviet Union, everything, the peaceful end of that huge conflict. There were great hopes uh, for Russia at the time, including by the Russians. But we can go into that. But I think we are now facing a Russia that is still an imperial, purely minded country, or at least ruled by an imperially minded elites. And I think until they break that mode, it, it is difficult to foresee Russia being integrated. So, I mean, I think, frankly, just as we had to decide, do we keep trying to figure this out with the Russians or do we build up the other peoples, just as many people in Eastern Europe population-wise as in all of Russia, why do we neglect their futures because of Mr. Putin? Wouldn't it be better to build them up, shore them up, show the alternative model works? And let and create the conditions by which change could happen in Russia. We're not going to engineer change in Russia. We aren't able to do that. But we can create conditions in Europe that would show the Russian people they have a different future. They're going to have to make the change, but we can show them what that change might look like. And that's why, again, I think Ukraine becomes so much important, not just because we want to stop a war, but because of what it could mean for Russia's future. Especially since Brexit, it's become clear that it's going to be Germany and or France that is the leadership within the EU. They have the largest economies, they have the largest populations, the kind of most dynamic countries there today. Do you see there being appetite for them taking on that mantle of leadership, especially given this, the context of the war with Russia and then what those sacrifices will entail? Well, I think, again, for a few decades, again, thinking of the World War II and World War One and all the other wars, and they, the, the idea that France and Germany could help steer the European project was reassuring to everyone that those arch enemies could come together. But it was always a partnership, it's a partnership of unbalanced partners. Germany clearly is the more dynamic of the two. And it, it has some weaknesses because of history. It's still traumatized by its history. It's afraid that what its neighbor is going to think if it exerts too much influence. You can see all of the difficulties it's having adjusting to how to deal with the Ukraine and Russia aggression. But it's making changes. And France is, I think, if you, Mr. Macron likes to speak for Europe, but I don't think often he does. And so it's, I think France is finding it harder to get other Europeans to follow. And then the Franco-German relationship at the moment is a little difficult. The Germans aren't necessarily 
letting the French lead on this or that issue. They don't really agree with some of the things that Macron is trying to do. So that's difficult for the French because of their sense of themselves and their own sense of the world. So I think what you're seeing is a much more complicated game where you have to build coalitions in Europe to get anything done. And the Germans have proven that they can do that pretty well. They, the war has made it complicated for them with some Central and European countries. They have a, an awful relationship right now with Poland. But by and large, Germany is behind the scenes cobbling together coalitions that sometimes the French aren't part of. And so we have to watch this as the U.S., but I think that's the evolving dynamic. As Germany becomes the swing state of Europe, in my mind, no doubt about it. The way the Germans want to go is probably the way Europe will go, depending on how, how good their diplomacy is. Right. I mean, they're the ones writing the checks for the most part, leading the way. I want to revisit your comment on energy. We referenced the, the bet that Germany and, and other Western European nations made with relying on cheap energy from Russia and how that turned out. Obviously, the U.S. has become, to some extent, not wholly, but energy independent. We are an exporter and we've built that relationship with them. What does the future look like in regards in the context of the energy relationship between the U.S. and the EU? Well, I think if you look at the traditional energy relationship, so gas, uh, in particular LNG, <clears throat> that's going to continue for some time. And the Europeans are building all sorts of gas terminals now to receive U.S. gas. The Germans built two in a matter of months. People said it would take years, and they, they scrambled it and did it in two months. It's un unbelievable, really. And you, so, and they're signing new deals around the world with alternative suppliers, including the U.S. And I think as the U.S. builds out its capacity, there is an important change in how the U.S., companies operate that once it leaves the port, they can take it anywhere. And and they're based on price usually. So right now the price is higher in Europe. That could change because before the prices were all higher in Asia. So it's price sensitive. But as long as there's this war going on and the Europeans haven't really made the transition to a different model that's not dependent on Russia, I think that'll continue. I think for the longer term though, we are both faced with the need to deal with changing climate, to look at our competitive advantage and lower energy costs, and also to come up with clean technologies that will transition us to a different type of energy model. And there, it's interesting, again, in my view, how densely interconnected we are. So I've been working with a group called the Clean Tech Group, and they just released a report, which I would recommend, that traced mutual investment flows across the Atlantic over the last seven years in the clean tech space. So what it shows, interestingly, is that U.S. investors, companies invested about $23 billion in the European energy startups and innovation. And that when a U.S. investor was part of the European deal, that deal got to market faster got to growth stage faster, and the deal was bigger than if it was a purely European deal. And the other way around is equally true, that about $20 billion flowing in the U.S. energy economy from European investors in the clean tech startup world, and that if a European investor joined those 
in the U U.S. startup venture. Bigger deal, faster to market, faster growth than if the Europeans weren't involved. So I think that only underscores these deep linkages across the Atlantic. We are not only in our in the pure energy are we each other's most important investment partners, but in the R&D sector we are as well. The largest, I think 75%, I think is my number, of foreign investment in the U.S. R&D is from Europe. And you, as I said, U.S. companies are by far the largest investors in European research and innovation. So it seems to me we should, while we manage some issues we have with policy, things like the Inflation Reduction Act and its impact, and we need to think ahead to the next model because the timeline we're on to meet the climate deadlines, we're not going to get from here to there unless we start doing some things differently, including harnessing a bigger market. There are a lot of technologies out there we could use. They're just not scaled up yet to be commercially viable. So if you can think about the transatlantic economy, huge market, six, $6 trillion economy, starting to scale up commercial opportunities in clean tech, I think that would do something faster for us. And you make a profit on it. So why not do that? It's, I and others are calling for a transatlantic clean tech alliance a TACTA, and that would get the innovators and the investors more into the picture than they are at the moment. What we notice is the missing voice in the U.S.-European policy debates are investment community. They're not present, and the policymakers don't know them. They don't know the innovators either, and vice versa. People innovating the next economic model aren't really attuned to the policy debates that are going on across the Atlantic. We need to bring those them all together. So what would you like to see? You said you're an advocate for this kind of larger alliance. What would you like to see from a policy perspective out of Washington moving forward, regardless of whatever political parties can control? Well, President Biden and the European Commission, President von der Leyen, in uh, their summit in June 2021, pledged to create what they call a Green Technology Alliance. They pledged to do that. I haven't seen a lot. So I would say, just make good on your pledge. And then what does that mean? It means, again, harnessing the potential we have to create that next future energy model. So it means this Clean Tech Alliance would bring investors and innovators into the mix so they can help identify where the market opportunities are. You need the demand owners, big companies, to create that market by saying, we will commit to buying certain kind of thing. If you look there's a Swedish company called Northvolt. It's into new types of battery production. And Volkswagen stepped up and said, we will purchase X amount of this going forward, which created suddenly a market for that little company to scale up. That's the kind of thing we need to do. The government should be bringing all of this together. And then we should think about what are the barriers to a clean tech marketplace? The European Trade Commissioner, Mr. Dobrovskis, is, is calling for a green transatlantic marketplace. So we need to give that content. So what's, what's stopping that from happening? Are there certain trade barriers that stop that? Are there regulatory differences? I know there are. So what are they from the perspective of investors and innovators? I think there's a window right now where the policymakers are trying to understand that. They want to hear that message because they're trying to create this alliance, but they're not sure, you know, what, from a corporate point of view or investment point of view, 
what's stopping you from investing across the Atlantic? So I think the more we can stimulate that and build a new kind of coalition that gets the demand owners, the investors, the innovators together with the policymakers, that's what we need to be doing in the next, say, six months. There's another summit probably in October, and I would hope by that time we would have put some flush in the bones of this idea. I want to end with Ukraine and the situation. What do you think a successful endgame looks like from a U.S. and European standpoint? Well, again, it depends on your timeline. So I think often, again, we look at the television and we listen to these retired generals or commentators, and they all like to say, how will this end? Unfortunately, I think the better question is, how will this continue? I don't see an end game in a short-term perspective in terms of ending the war in any clear peace agreement type of way. Putin has shown that he's not ready to step back from what he's doing. And the Ukrainians, certainly after suffering so much, are in no mood to allow Russian forces to be positioned in spaces that rip across Ukrainian territory and continue to inflict harm on their population. So I don't see a movement there. The best would be some sort of ceasefire, but that won't hold because it would be opposing forces across the line of control, seeking advantage every day. It would be attrition. It would not be stable. So best case is the Ukrainians at the moment have the advantage, hopefully, to get a better positioning for themselves to either then engage the Russians on what situation that they could live with looks like, or they continue the fight. And we should continue that with them. So if you look at the longer term end game, it's what I had said earlier. You have to think of the kind of Europe that we hope to see, I still hope one that's whole and free and at peace with itself. But that means that the borders of that whole and free Europe will have to extend uh, to Ukraine and to Moldova, this tiny country next to it, and integrating that big chunk of Europe and expanding the space of Europe, of free markets, democracies, where war simply doesn't happen, is what we've been doing for 70 years. And so actually doing more of it is okay. The cost of that, of course, is confronting Russia, but that is, we we have been put in this position. It wasn't because we did not start this war. And so I think you have to create a new set of realities for the Russian leadership and understand the consequences if they continue to go down the road they're on. And, And hopefully they draw the right lessons from that. And so you have to have strategic patience but you have to be active in creating conditions of integration to enhance the strength of the West. And I think that's the lesson of much of European history and much of the lesson of how the U.S. is engaged in Europe's conflicts. Dan, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. Very eye-opening. I encourage people to check out the website. If people are interested in learning more about your work, your research, your content, we'll push them to the website, but is there another way for them to connect with you? Well, dhamilton at jhu.edu, Johns Hopkins University, or the Transatlantic Leadership also has a network, also has a website, which is just transatlantic.org. So it's transatlantic.org or transatlanticrelations.org. 
And I work also with my colleagues at Brookings, and they have a great resource there for most things in terms of both domestic and global affairs analysis. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Yeah, thank you for the time. One question we ask everyone that comes on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Well, I do. I swim every morning. Really? That's good. It gives you a certain discipline. The other thing I do, which is more, I don't know if it's peace, but it's a discipline, is I go through all of the papers and everything, and I create sort of a list of must-reads that people should read, that I should read. It helps you go through the voices of the news and single out the things you think are most important and hopefully come back to and spend some time on. So, And otherwise, you invest in relationships with your family and with everyone around you. You're the first swimmer we've had. I like that. That's good. Well, Dan, thank you so much. We look forward to staying in touch. We'll stay abreast of your research. Best of luck. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. 